You're listening to a podcast by Mission Field USA, a church planting initiative of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. For more information and resources, visit lcms.org slash church planting. Hello, Mission Field USA listeners. I'm Steve Shave, director of LCMS Church Planting and also host for our podcast today. And along with me again is Reverend Dr. Mark Larson, who also serves as the manager for LCMS Church Planting. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Steve. Good to have you back with us today. It's a great day to be here. It is. And we are very excited. Uh, we have a very special guest with us today, uh, Reverend uh, Larry Vogel, who serves here at the LCMS as the Associate Executive Director of the Commission on Theology and Church Relations, also known as CTCR. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for having me. It's, it's good to be here. Very good to have you with us. Um, obviously, you've got the theological chops, and uh, we know that you have plenty of acumen there. But uh, as I look at uh, Larry's uh, bio, Mark, it's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, he's, he's the real deal in terms of, of missions, uh, working at a Lakota Sioux Reservation, uh, missionary pastor in Queens, New York, uh, did some chaplaincy. Uh, also served uh, at a inner city uh, chapel and school in New Jersey, and so we're that's what we're excited about. We're excited about talking not only uh, theological perspectives, but also to get into the the nitty gritty uh, of what it is uh, here in Mission Field USA. Um, Mark, we are very pleased to have uh, Larry speak for us at an urban conference and just did a, an amazing job of setting up the landscape of what does the future of Mission Field USA really look like. And not only will we get into the technical details, but also uh, really get into the nitty gritty of what does that mean for us uh, as a mission here in America? And what does that mean for us, both theologically and practically speaking for our Missiology. You excited, Mark? I am. I'm looking forward to see what Larry, uh, what insight Larry might have for us as we think about how we're going to be able to impact our country with the gospel. Very good. So here we go, Larry. Um, just to kick things off, we're going to start out with kind of the demographic changes that have taken place here in the United States. And if you could just break it down for us a little bit, what is what do you see as being the the big picture for demographic changes, and what are some of the key elements that we're seeing in terms of our population? Well, I'd, I'd actually want to put it into two categories. Um, um, the biggest picture, if you will, is uh, is actually a worldwide transition. Demographers call it the, the demographic transition. It's taking place uh, literally in, in every part of the world. Mm. Um, and in some respects, uh, uh, demographers talk about uh, both a first and second demographic transition. I don't want to get too technical or detailed, but uh, but this is pretty important stuff just to get a sense of what's happening uh, with the, the human population as a whole. Sure, uh, we've uh, you know, in, especially in the Western world, uh, um, there's been a lot of concern uh, again and again expressed, and still being expressed. Uh, uh, fairly often about population uh, growth. A lot of people um, uh, worry about that. Uh, uh, I'm young enough to remember one of the big bestsellers from the 1970s, the population bomb by Paul Ehrlich, 
which literally predicted that within a decade or so, the world was going to be starving to death and mm. that millions were going to be dying. Wow. Um, he was... Um, he was pretty phenomenally wrong. Um, and, and that actually kind of points to what I want to talk about here in terms of this demographic transition. It's got three marks um, or elements to it. Um, declining birth rates first, uh, excuse me, declining death rates first, then declining birth rates. And then third, um, uh, the result of that, which is a graying population. Um, if you look, um, if you look over the last uh, couple of centuries, Starting in the um, starting in the late 1700s, but especially in the 1800s, uh, in the Western world, you see um, uh, gradually, uh, with the growth of uh, improved sanitation, with the growth of of uh, beginning uh, under, to understand uh, infectious diseases and all kinds of medical advances that started to take place. Um, a, a key thing that happened first and foremost was infant mortality began to decline. And with that also, uh, maternal mortality. Uh, that meant more babies were living into adulthood. More mothers were able to have more babies. Mm -hmm. um, and that leads to population growth. Mm -hmm. And so in the 19th and 20th centuries uh, around the world, there was population growth. And much of that was, was for this very reason. Uh, the flip side of that, um, demographers call that declining death rates. The flip side of that, though, was that over time, um, families began to see the advantage of having fewer children. Hmm. Okay. When in one era, a woman has, say, six kids and three survive to adulthood, um, there's, there's a different perspective about childbirth. It's just sort of nobody even talks about it. It's just there. Hmm. When on the other hand, in another era, a woman has three, three babies and all survive, well, the end result is three kids in each case, right? But right. fewer pregnancies. Okay. Uh, but now if um, that woman in the transition period is having six and six are surviving, that's what eventually leads people to start to say, hey, let's not have so many babies. <laughs> and so you got declining birth rates. Okay. Um, and then, uh, of course, the, the, the next result is that overall, the average age of the population starts to, to increase especially as birth rates decline and as health care and so forth means that people live longer. Um, for instance, here in the United States, when Social Security was first established, it was established with the understanding that most people were only going to live to an average age of somewhere between 65 and 70 at the most. Well, now we're looking at a very different picture in terms of longevity. Now this this big picture is called the demographic transition. Okay. And what it's what it's ended up in the Western world. Now I'm talking Europe and North America, uh, but also in much of Asia, is extremely low birth rates for much of the population. Hmm. Asia actually, interestingly, has about the lowest birth rates if you look at the most developed parts of Asia. Wow. Like Japan. Singapore, yeah. for instance, is the lowest. It's well under one child per woman. Okay. Um, Japan is close to that, very low. South Korea also, Taiwan, and actually China. China partly artificially because of the one-child policy, but interestingly, even when they voided that policy in 2016, their birth rates haven't climbed. Right. So bottom line is people are having fewer babies, and demographers talk about 2.1 children per average woman as being the point at which a population simply reproduces itself. Mm -hmm. That's that's what the average number needs to be. Um, 
Now, for the United States, we've done pretty well with this. But the reason we've done pretty well is not because of the so-called um, classic U.S. population. That would be non-Hispanic whites. Okay. Non-Hispanic whites in the U.S. actually have a, a birth rate that's well below replacement value. Okay. Um, but we have a lot of immigrants. Mm, we right. have not only a lot of immigrants, we've got a lot of diversity. Right. And it's the more diverse population of the U.S. that that maintains our population these days and actually causes it to continue to grow. Europe is suffering significantly. East Asia is. I have a son and daughter-in-law who live in Taiwan. They have three children. They were paid for each child. They were paid a significant amount of money by the government because mm. Taiwan is worried. Mm. Uh, they're worried about the fact that they're not, not having enough babies to reproduce their population for the future. Interesting. So this is the big picture of demographic change. Fewer babies, older people. And that's pretty significant for the whole Western world and for North America, especially for the population of the LCMS. Sure. Um, <clears throat> when I remember growing up pretty I'm a pretty similar time that you did, and you the whole population explosion was just a real concern and overpopulation. Right. And it always seemed to run pretty directly counter to, you know, Genesis 1 and 2. <laughs> and so I wonder if you had any comment about that, uh, you know, uh, the wisdom of Scripture and, and telling us to continue to be fruitful and multiply. The first great commission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, uh, the best of my knowledge, Genesis 1 and 2 have not been revoked. And, and, uh, um, I've not heard that report either. <laughs> Nothing from the CTC the, on that. The, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the simple point I think that is so emphatic in Scripture is that value is given to human life sure. uh, yeah. and human beings. And, Absolutely. And uh, um, as, as uh, birth rates decline... There are various reasons for that, but one of the biggest ones is economics. It's not the only one, though. Uh, as a matter of fact, there it's a pretty complex issue, mm -hmm. um, it, it, um, and it certainly affects women, as you would guess, far more dramatically than men. I mean, think about, uh, say, two centuries ago, um, the so-called average woman's life. When she reaches um, um, adulthood and gets married, she has babies. One, after another, mm -hmm. after another, after another, she spends a huge portion of her life, the majority of it, being pregnant, caring for children, raising children, nurturing children, and so on and so forth. That's, and that's simply because of the reality of the time. That's if she's healthy. And, and when she's having her last kids, then the first grandchildren probably aren't far behind. Well, yeah. yeah. But now, now if, if we think about the average woman today, well, first of all, um, women and men are getting married at much older ages. And why is that? Because primarily because of educational goals. Sure. Um, also because marriage itself is, uh, is, is not viewed as, as significant and as important as it used to be. Okay. And also because bearing children is not necessarily viewed as one of life's highest priorities. Mm. All those things kind of uh, make us as Christians start to say, wait a minute, um, are we paying attention to Genesis still? Sure. Are we paying attention to the value of human life? Are mm -hmm. we, where are we in stuff like that? Because it's, uh, we know it's more important than maybe 
right. our casual culture might uh, consider to sure. be. And, and the challenges would... are still there for raising a family. And sure, and they are. Have, yeah. You know, having yeah. lots of kids and thinking yeah, they all have course. to go to college. Of course. And, well, you know, yeah, 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 I, yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm certainly not careers. trying to. Um, uh, make light of the kinds of oh, concerns sure. that everybody, yep. including Christian um, parents, yeah. have about, well, you know, what about uh, children and how many children and right. so on. Right. But yeah, but definitely need to continue to encourage right. uh, what God has uh, given us as his <clears throat> gifts. And I think things kind of come full circle. It wasn't too many years ago that National Geographic then had this uh, pretty big article about, if I remember correctly, uh, the problem now of not having enough children right. and the impact that that's having on societies. Like you say, in the U.S., we've had immigration that's really negated a lot of that. But a lot of countries, if they don't have enough children to take care of the old. They're feeling it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's yeah. a big negative impact. The U.S. is actually an outlier among the most highly developed nations. I mean, we are absolutely an outlier. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, though, I, I mentioned that this is worldwide. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that at one point or another, this is happening in every culture. Latin America, for instance, is not far behind North America when it comes to birth rates okay. and, and uh, a graying population. Okay. Um, uh, a country like India, which has a huge population, has significantly declining birth rates, however. And uh, um, even though India is going to surpass China in population, its growth curve has really diminished, uh, and that's all part of this demographic transition. Mm -hmm. Some might say, well, Africa is the exception to it. However, um, um, mortality rates have declined in Africa also, more slowly, mm -hmm. sadly. And bit by bit, birth rates are slowly inching down in Africa. The other part of the world that's, uh, um, that is kind of the earliest in the transition is um, certain parts of the world that are heavily dominated by Islam. Okay. Yes. Now, we're talking a lot about the age of the population and fertility rates and that sort of thing. Um, what do you have to say about just the global phenomenon of cities and urbanization? I mean, I've, I've heard statistics that say, you know, upwards of half of the world is going to live in these major global cities uh, yeah. in the not too f yeah. far future. Well, and actually, that's that's a direct component of all of this. I'm trying to be a, <laughs> a little bit simple here, but uh, together with changes in medical care and uh, um, uh, sanitation and so forth, goes the um, um, the whole process of urbanization, which again began in the um, in the 19th century, uh, especially. I mean, mm -hmm. that's when it uh, proceeded most rapidly and continued into the 20th century. So that took place uh, here in North America. It's taken place uh, across all of Europe. It is taking place in in Africa. And as populations uh, um, kind of come together in cities, um, it certainly plays into this whole demographic transition. Of course, there are many other pieces to that pie, sure. however. And, and um, um, cities are are, I think, the most exciting uh, places to be. I yeah. I was blessed to be able to, even though I grew up in a small town and served for a while on a on an Indian reservation in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I've spent most of my uh, adult life and most of my life serving in the church in, right. in uh, three cities, in New York, in the greater Philadelphia area, and now in St. Louis. 
Right. And what you see in cities, uh, especially this is true in North America, is an incredibly diverse population. Yep. And and that makes cities both challenging and exciting. Right. It's also um, the kind of place that frightens a lot of people, especially <laughs> people who are uh, who are kind of well, uh, like many of us, uh, who are most comfortable in suburban areas, in right. small towns, in right? Places where, when you look around, you see people who are mostly like you. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I think we're going to dive into that a little bit more as we go. But but certainly, if eighty one percent of the population, let's say, is in America, living in the city, as you said, it's the the place of diversity. It's where the nations are literally coming uh, to our ports. Um, you know, there's definitely something to be said about if we're looking for a new frontier in America. I think uh, you know the city seems to be one of the best mission fields kind of on planet earth but but give us a, a little bit more of a breakdown then on the demographic profile here just in in the united states based on a lot of these okay. population shifts that are happening yeah i've been talking about this kind of technical phenomenon called the demographic transition sure but another way to look at demographics is just to look at as you use the word profiles mm-hmm. so what's the profile of the demography for the united states um well, by profile, I mean, you know, what are the subpopulations that make up the population of, of the U.S. or North America? The largest single group is non-Hispanic whites. Um, and that's what uh, um, once so dominated the landscape that, uh, uh, that generally if you spoke about minorities, you were only talking about African Americans, mm-hmm. and they were for a long part of U.S. history um, less than ten percent of the population. So most of the population was from some European background or another, right. and approaching say ninety percent uh, roughly. Uh, today that number has has gone down dramatically, so that the non-Hispanic white population of the U.S. is is uh, uh, now down in the. Seventy um, percent range, but it continues to to come down because of uh, things like um, a lower birth rate. Okay. Um, and as the United States uh, continues forward, more and more of the population is non-white. They are African American. They are immigrants from various places. Uh, uh, we we tend to think most uh, frequently about Hispanic in- immigrants. Uh, right. And certainly Hispanics are a very large portion of the U.S. population and still a significantly growing part of the population. But we also have a lot of immigrants from many other parts of the world right, in the U.S. Right. The um, last time I checked into this, it looks as if Asian immigrants are the fastest growing segment yep. of yep. the immigrant population in the United States. So I've heard, too. Um, so we've got... We've got non-Hispanic whites who are still the dominant group but are declining and also are aging significantly. And a population that is older, as you might guess, has fewer people of childbearing age. And so the future trajectory is pretty clear. Right. Now, nobody knows this stuff because it's always looking into the future, a little bit of uh, looking into um, the glass, so to speak. But... um, (laughs) um, but most demographers are guessing somewhere in the range of uh, 2050, the population of the U.S. is going to become majority minority. Right, right. Um, 
and that's that's the big shift that's taking place in terms of the demographic profile of the U.S. Yeah, and I've, I've seen that kind of coupled with the idea that for 250 years you had kind of the big block of immigration, and it was primarily Protestant, you know, people coming for religious freedom, coming from Europe, uh, you know, like 35 million people over that huge span of time, and then you shrink it down to just in a few decades – Pretty much the same number of people, but they come from all walks, uh, you know, from from countries that are not European, that are not uh, primarily Christian. Uh, so it's it's been kind of a, a major shift, I think, in terms of what kind of built us at the foundation here uh, as a church body to now what we've seen in terms of uh, immigration. There's been a major shift, I would say. Does that sound about right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, actually, there have been ebbs and, and uh, uh, rises of immigration throughout U.S. history. There have been periods where uh, there, was a, there was pretty strong anti-immigrant sentiment and, and immigration uh, was restricted severely mm-hmm. and other periods in which uh, uh, immigration was, uh, was welcomed. And so there have been ups and downs all along sure. and uh, and but but the countries uh, from which people have immigrated um, certainly that that has changed uh, most dramatically uh, over the last uh, half century okay uh, so that increasing numbers of people are not coming from Europe right so so let's take those things together you've, you've got your demographic transition that has affected America we have kind of our own profile of what's happening in terms of graying population, in terms of changes in immigration, in terms of urbanization. If we put it all together, then what does that mean for us uh, in terms of American Christianity and specifically for us in the LCMS? Well, if, if you just look at the demographic side of things, and let's start with that transition, uh, you see one of the major explanations for the fact that so-called mainstream Christianity is in decline. Mm-hmm. Because mainstream Christianity, that is, more traditional denominations, for the most part, um, are made up of non-Hispanic whites. Okay. Now, uh, that would be true of, um, of, let's say, the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. That would be true of... Presbyterianism as a whole, that would be true of uh, Lutheranism as a whole. And as a matter of fact, for Lutheranism as a whole, it is more true than it is for any other single group. Lutheranism as a whole is about 95% non-Hispanic white, Right. if you look at the U.S. population of Lutherans. So most others you know, are least like us now in the LCMS <laughs> in terms of population. Yeah, that's exactly okay. right. Gotcha. Um, now, for a while, people wanted to wanted to. Well, they said, and often um, uh, they, they were convinced uh, that the primary reason for religious decline, uh, for the decline of Christianity, was that the so-called mainstream churches were theologically liberal. Okay. Now, I, I uh, certainly uh, do not want to, in any way, shape, or form, <laughs> defend theological liberalism. Right. But that, as an explanation for what was going on, has been largely disproven. Okay, uh, it's because the more conservative groups, like Southern Baptists, for instance, mm-hmm. or Missouri Synod Lutherans, for instance, or uh, quite a few others um, among evangelicals, are also uh, 
uh, facing significant decline. Um, and what you really see is more of a aging curve. Okay. Whereas you can show that most of the main lines are even older than others, but even that is is less than uh, um, conclusive in terms of the cause for decline. Okay. But all in all, the bottom line is simply that what we might call traditional Christian denominations are in decline okay. uh, across the United States. Yeah. Um, and the biggest single reason for the decline is just the demographic picture, uh, if you're looking at it sociologically. Okay. And again, that's that's all I'm doing here is trying to just the facts. To, <laughs> trying to deal with the sociological. Data. Sure. Just um, the facts. Gotcha. Now, there are some exceptions though, and the exceptions fascinate me. Okay. Uh, in terms of decline, because I think they're they're really important for us to to recognize. Um, the biggest single exception is is Pentecostalism. Okay. Pentecostalism continues to grow, and it grows. It's growing rapidly. Contrary to almost anything that you would think or <laughs> or read in newspapers, Roman Catholicism is doing better than most. It's doing far better than any Protestant traditional denomination. In terms of? In terms of overall membership okay. and percentage of the U.S. population. Okay. The third group that uh, um, you might mention are just a couple of, and I really mean just a couple of... Uh, um, smaller church bodies. One is the American Baptists, and the second is the Presbyterian Church in America, hmm. both of which are, are growing okay. over the last um, 50 years. Now, what do all those church bodies have in common? They're the most diverse churches. Ah, okay. And um, uh, they have a, or they are churches with growing diversity. It seems Roman logical. Ca Roman Catholics, yeah. for instance, are maintaining their, for the large part, maintaining their percentage of the U.S. population almost exclusively because of immigration of Hispanics. Okay. So that most um, most surveys indicate that uh, about 40% of the Roman Catholic Church is Hispanic now, and well over 60% in many areas of the country, Southwest, California, uh, down through Texas, and so forth. Um, and if you look at those who actually are active in the Roman Catholic Church, that, that is heavily weighted toward Hispanics. So the Roman Catholic Church in North America, from a demographic perspective, perspective is surviving because, because of Hispanic immigration. Okay. Um, Interesting. It also has benefited from immigrants from other countries as well. It's doing a decent job of drawing people in. Um, who are part of that whole changing demographic profile. Hispanics um, also have a very significant presence within Pentecostalism. Uh, Pentecostalism is over 50% non-white. Um, and that makeup is, uh, is uh, not just Hispanic, but uh, it's, um, it's African-American. It's also uh, uh, other immigrant groups and and so forth. Um, now, again, I'm not saying anything about church's doctrine here or anything like right, that, nor right. am I endorsing. No, that. this is just kind of. But it is important to recognize that the that the one common denominator among the healthier Christian groups 
is actually the fact that they are more diverse, that they are reaching that new American population more effectively than those who are suffering and struggling uh, from the standpoint of membership. Gotcha. And I mean, it does just does seem like a logical thing. It's just the, kind of the natural order of of how this would would occur. So. And would you say they're in the cities more also or not? Yes. As a matter of fact, that is true. Um, but again, that's because the cities are the most diverse part of the U.S. And it's not exclusively in the cities, by the way, either. The Hispanic population, for instance, while it is, while it is significantly urban, um, is, is also surprisingly uh, scattered throughout places where you wouldn't expect. Okay. Nebraska, for instance, uh, um, has a, a significant Hispanic population now. Yeah. Nebraska. Right. right. I'm from Nebraska. Uh, <laughs> I went to school there. And, and, and it has, it has um, um, Roman Catholic parishes in Nebraska that are majority Hispanic. Yeah. And the, often around the meatpacking plants. Exactly. Sure. Like yeah. Grand Island, yeah. Lexington, yeah. small, yeah, you're fairly exactly small right. cities. And you're exactly right. But, uh, but the Hispanic population has scattered throughout the United States. So we wouldn't want to say that's all urban because right. that, that would be uh, a misperception. Right, right. But, I mean, it's, it's just a growing trend throughout the United States. Well, yeah. I think that's fair yeah. to say. Sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we're going to, on the other side of this bump... Uh, take a look at what does this mean for the future of missions in the LCMS? Um, what does it mean for us just in terms of how we look at our theology and our, our missiology? And uh, w- what does this mean for us in terms of how, how we approach the way we're going to do outreach in the near future in a, in a new America, really, is what we're talking about. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller inviting you to join me every Monday afternoon on Cross Defense, 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock here on KFUO Radio, where we take up curious topics, curious Christian topics, to excite our imaginations, equip our minds, and comfort our consciences with the supreme and beautiful clarity of God's Word. It happens on Cross Defense every Monday afternoon, 2 to 3, here on KFUO. Please make plans to join us. And if you can't join us live, check out the podcast at kfuo.org. Welcome back to our Mission Field USA podcast listeners. Uh, so much good stuff to unpack here about the future of Mission Field USA and the new America and how we can reach out to our neighbors uh, with the gospel. So uh, welcome back, Larry. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about overall the LCMS? How, how does this all affect us in the LCMS? Well, if you look at us demographically, um, as I mentioned in the first part, uh, LCMS is majority non-Hispanic white, 95%. Um, therefore, it shares the demographic traits of the U.S. non-Hispanic white population in, in many ways. And that means declining birth rates um, and also aging. We are actually aging faster than the average uh, for non-Hispanic whites are. Our population is older than than the average uh, for for whites in the U.S. Um, 
And that's because another issue that's affecting us significantly is not just declining birth rates, but declining retention of young people and young families. Um, that's a big challenge for us. It's a challenge for Christianity all through right. the U.S. Right. But it's more of a challenge, by the way, for for white churches than it is for uh, more diverse churches, Sure, interestingly enough. Sure. Um, another factor that's really important for the LCMS is that um, we have minimal presence in high population areas of the country. And what I mean by that are cities, first and foremost. Uh, sadly, the LCMS has uh, closed numerous congregations throughout cities right. in the U.S. Right. and has many uh, of its congregations in the cities that are really struggling sure. uh, for survival. Um, but the other thing to mention are, are the coasts. You know, about 50% of the U.S. population is on the east and west coasts, and if you add uh, if you add uh, um, sections of Texas to that, it's it's even higher. Wow. Um, and that's where we aren't. Okay. I mean, our... our um, uh, presence on on the coasts is is minimal by comparison. It doesn't mean we don't have any congregations, but we have very few. Our heavy presence, as everybody knows, is the Midwest. Okay, and um, um, less in the cities of the Midwest than in small town suburbs um, and and the rural Midwest. Right. And isn't it true that um, what presence we did have on the coast has actually declined? I mean, that our largest declines have been it on is. the coast, especially the East Coast and West Coast. That is absolutely coast. the case. Yeah. I served in New York and New Jersey, and both of them are examples just in terms of states right. that have a much smaller LCMS presence in terms of numbers of members sure. um, than we did 20 years ago. Yeah, even 20 years ago, much less 40 years ago. And it's interesting because it is kind of that half glass that's either full or empty for church planting being the most effective way to reach the lost it does seem like it, it's so bleak sounding but at the same time it does mean there's a ton of opportunity for us in terms well, of yeah i mean for me it, it means that's that's where that's where <laughs> the lord is pointing us yeah you know yeah it's it's go and make disciples of all nations i mean there's nothing really obscure about that verse is there yeah. but let's take a so pause where are those nations <laughs> yeah amen amen and, and we are going to take a pause and just take so so if we're just looking at this the perspective what what is the end result that we see right now. If you mean by that what's happening to the LCMS, is that what you mean? Yes. Well, things do look bleak in terms of our overall uh, um, uh, membership. Uh, it's in decline. It has been in decline for quite some time. Okay. Uh, actually, uh, ever since the um, uh, 1970s, there's been only a few periods of where, where there's been any actual growth. And for the last couple of decades, especially, it's been a steep decline. That's not going from a sociological or demographic <laughs> perspective. There's no reason to think that that's going to change. Okay. Now, I'm not going to sell the Holy Spirit short. There you go. Um, but but I'm just talking about what the what the numbers seem to indicate from a from the perspective of sociology or, or specifically demography. Fair enough. Um, and that that means lots of stuff. It means it's a challenge for our church. As an institution, I love the Missouri Synod. Mm -hmm. uh, I love it. I want it to be healthy and strong and, and uh, uh, to have a good future. But we're going to face some real challenges, and, and they're not going to go away anytime soon. Right. Think of our, our school system. 
schools are populated by kids. Right. We don't have as many of them. So we've closed Lutheran schools all over the place. Okay. That's sad. And it doesn't uh, bode well for our future. It also means that our high schools are going to have fewer potential students and then in turn our Concordia University system. It means that we're likely to have fewer candidates for the pastoral ministry. Those are all parts of the challenge here that just flows out of the demographics of the circumstances that we're in. And I think if you go back to our origin, though, uh, of the LCMS here in America, and you look at just how many churches were being planted, how there really was this idea of pioneers going into the the frontiers. I mean, literally going out west, you know, in their horse and buggies uh, and, and starting new churches to a completely different population yeah. of people. Well, and and there's a point, and I think that this is it as far as this interview goes, to say, okay, that's enough with the, the- with the um, sociology and the demography, and let's talk theology. Yeah. Uh, what what does the Lord call on us right. to to be and to do? And I think too. What does our theology say about a circumstance like the one we're in? Right. Absolutely. And I, and I think also we we use the language of you know an an institutional crisis. Uh, so many times we kind of have this. Uh, in our minds about the decline in the mainline church, the decline in the mainline church. But this isn't, we, we love the LCMS, right? We, we just said that, but it isn't so much about the institutional preservation that matters. It's the treasure of this confession of faith that we have, that we want to share with the rest of America. And not only is it not just not about institutional preservation, it's about wanting to be faithful to the gospel. It's about wanting to be faithful uh, to God's calling for us as a church body. And I think that means um, getting past just the decline narrative. So, for example, I got invited to be with other national leaders in church planting. I went up to the Send Institute at the Billy Graham Center, a um, lot of biblically conservative church bodies that were represented. Everybody's kind of having the same conversation about what's going on in terms of decline and that sort of thing. But uh, one of the leaders, uh, Daniel Yang, I thought he had an interesting perspective. And so the way he described it is getting past the decline narrative, because the average immigrant that's here and then is a Christian, they don't they don't understand this decline because they're not of that culture. So what he described it as uh, is the arrival narrative. And by that, he's talking about an actual movie. It's a sci-fi movie. And in the sci-fi movie, the aliens come to Earth, right? And so the aliens are going to leave this piece of technology for the Earthlings. And the Earthlings are going to take this technology and they're going to move leaps and bounds beyond where we are with our own technology today. And it's going to help us to prosper and all these things. But what's fascinating about it is that there's another Uh, motive behind leaving that here. And it is that just as they have brought this to us on earth, there will come a time when the alien planet is in desperate need of this same technology. So they give us this technology. It helps us and prospers us. And then the day will come where it's time for us to take that and to rescue them. 
And so he describes that as being what's happening in America. The nations are coming here. And we look at it and we say, oh, we have to reach the nations because they're here in the United States. And from his perspective, he's saying, no, we have created these church body partners all over the world. We have brought this amazing confession of the Lutheran faith. And now they are coming to our borders and they see us as the mission field. And that's what he describes as kind of this arrival narrative. What, what do you guys think about that? Huh. Well, I'm not familiar with it, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you have not heard of the movie either, but I think it's already well, happened. Well, now you got to watch it. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, think yeah. it's already happened. I mean, when you're in the field so often, I mean, you see, you see missionaries from all over the world who are here. Yeah. You know, I think in terms of Lutherans, especially Ethiopia or maybe Tanzania mm-hmm. or Indonesia, right. you know, I mean, their immigrants have come and they have brought uh, passionate Christians who want to share the gospel. Right. And so, That's I mean, right. they're they're here already, and I think they are already a blessing to us mm-hmm. and could be much more so if we would recognize the gift that they are. So, Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, you know, I mentioned um, Roman Catholics, what's happening among mm-hmm. them. And, and actually, the Hispanics who are joining the Roman Catholic Church are, are, are not, uh, <laughs> you know, are, are not from what I see, playing into the narrative of, oh man, this church is really um, ready to fold because of all its problems. It has huge problems. <laughs> sure. uh, but instead, they're they're revitalizing churches. Uh, close to where I lived uh, in St. Louis, uh, um, uh, when, when we first moved here, the closest Roman Catholic parish was being considered for closure. Okay. But the, the diocese decided not to and instead what happened, they put in um, um, a Spanish-speaking priest. And the last time I uh, drove by that church was actually a Palm Sunday. Mm. And the Palm Sunday procession was about six blocks long yeah. with well over a 1,000 people in it. Wow. Um, okay. And from the look of it, mostly Hispanic. Um, but, okay, that's an example, I sure. think, of this, yeah. Yeah. of this very thing. Right. I also mentioned the Presbyterian Church in, in America. Yep. Um, that church body started in 1973. Yeah. Uh, they left for theological reasons. They're a very conservative, theologically conservative church body. Like okay. the LCMS, they don't ordain women. Uh, they are fully supportive of biblical inerrancy. Okay. Um, they were all white in 1973. Yeah. All white. Yeah. And all in the South, entirely in the South. Oh. Since that time, they have gone nationwide. Yep. And they have been extremely... Um, um, aggressive in planting churches in urban areas like the Northeast, for instance. Tim Keller is one of the best known oh, sure. um, yeah. uh, members of the PCA, yep. and and the work they've done in the metro New York area is is really um, uh, something uh, um, that that ought to be uh, attended to. Yeah. But another piece that's really important about the PCA is that they open their doors wide uh, to um, to Koreans. Oh, okay. And, and uh, they're about 20% Korean now. Okay. Um, in In the time between 1973 and the present day. Okay. And the Korean pastors of the PCA and churches are are very aggressive in terms of church planting and sharing the gospel. Yeah. Now, again, I'm not making light of theological differences. Amen. I don't want to ignore any of that. Right. But it is important to see that... Uh, that there are examples in which that thesis you just mentioned uh, yeah. is being lived out. And let's, uh, I'll bounce this off of you too, since you're our CTCR guy, uh, just in terms of mission work. I mean, obviously the United States of America is a, a major 
mission field. I mean, just based on the number of unchurched people and the people that are leaving the church and that sort of thing. It's fascinating to me, you know, it used to be, right, that the the raw mission work that was to be done, we were sending missionaries out into the field out there, and they were planting churches, and there's all this raw mission work, and now we have so many strong church partners around the world, and the thing that they seem to need the most from us is theological education. It's raising up their own yeah. uh, generation of leaders in the, the church, and then you look, but the flip is... When you see the United States, this seems to be, in a lot of ways, where it's just a, a huge ripe harvest for raw mission work to take place again. There's no it, doubt here in the U.S. There is no doubt. Okay. Um, I mean the the the, the level of um, of uh, uh, it's hard to you know judge <laughs> Christian <laughs> commitment to, uh, clearly, but uh, but the decline is um, is inarguable. Right. And and that means there's lots of souls perishing. Amen. And the call has, does not change to this go and make disciples. And sense of urgency. That means go where the where the people are and, and find ways to um, speak their language. Right. But to do it so that the word is proclaimed in truth and purity. Right. Because that's that's the power. Very true. Um, so, Larry, why do you, um, why don't why haven't we done better? Because uh, my experience in the church has been that I think our people really want to reach the lost and really want to reach people in other groups. I, I really believe there is that sense that they know that they are called by God to reach out with the gospel to people who aren't like them. But, you know, we're still 95% white. Uh, do you have a sense about why we have not done better in spite of what I think are some very serious and sustained efforts uh, among various groups? Yeah. I, you know, honestly, I don't want to go too far down that road because I, I'm— I, I don't want to be speculating. Um, I, I agree with you that, that that things are being done that are beneficial and helpful. Um, and I, you know, I think the uh, attempts to um, um, to train more uh, Spanish-speaking pastors and actually more Hispanic pastors, um, the uh, you know the EIIT program, for instance. Uh, um, the Hispanic training that's going on at both of our seminaries. These are really important efforts, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, do think, I do think that the power is in the Word of God. And while, yes, I don't, I don't think there's some huge reluctance to, uh, to reach out with the gospel, right. I do think there's perhaps a bit of a, of a lack of a sustained focus. Okay. It's easy to get discouraged. Um, you know, I, I served um, in an all-African-American community in New York. <laughs> I will make no bones about it being easy. It wasn't. Yeah. Uh, I was a white guy in a black neighborhood. And, and, and yet, uh, over time, the word really is <laughs> Funny how that powerful. Works. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, uh, sooner or later, the people listen. Yeah. And uh, um, bit by bit by bit... Uh, um, Hearing, they believe. And right, believing, right. they, um, they, they are his disciples. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in a way, I think we not we need to not get discouraged by the the truth of the word and keep uh, keep hearing it and proclaiming it to ourselves right, as well right. as uh, um, um, to the world around us. Yeah, you know, we we have these beautiful creeds that summarize three central things. Mm-hmm. 
the the you know the the doctrine of the Trinity points us uh, uh, to the person of the Father, the person of the Son, the person of the Holy Spirit, and then within the three articles of the Creed that we confess, um, we've got the great truth first of of creation that God has created all of us. You know that uh, that as Paul says at Areopagus, well, we are all from one man. Uh, what what an incredibly wonderful, beautiful truth that is to to proclaim and to make known again and again and again that all those differences that we see are superficial ultimately. They really are. We have to believe that. Mm. We have to believe it because it's the truth of God's Word. Right. Um, and then, of course, the other thing that, that is implicit in the first article is, is the fall and the great tragedy of a world that's broken and divided and, mm. and uh, a world that is increasingly hostile to, uh, to Christianity, to its creator, in rebellion. Uh, those are things that, that we need to hear again and again so that we know well, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Yeah, you know? right. We shouldn't be surprised by the world that we face or the fact that Satan is throwing particular curves our way at this at this time and place. And, and I mean, that's just first article stuff. Sure. But it's tremendously important. To, uh, the needs of people are, are real. You know? okay. God seeks to provide, and he... He does much of that. What do we say in Luther's small catechism? You know, most of it's talking about everyday stuff like clothing and shoes. Well, you know, he doesn't drop them from heaven. Uh, <laughs> that's not how he provides them, but he provides them. Right. But he's at work in us uh, for, uh, for, for those kinds of things. And to... all of that is just simple truth that, that, that we need to believe okay. and to proclaim. Hear it again and again and make it known. To welcome That's, our fellow beggars yeah, yeah, just, uh, that are in need just like us. Just yeah. first article. And and then, good grief, go beyond. <laughs> Second article where it explodes. You know, that I was always struck by, you know, in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I found as a pastor, you know, for most people it's kind of like, yeah, okay. But what's the next word? And. <laughs> there's something else and now wait for this you know and this and in Jesus Christ and all of a sudden now look God becomes flesh the incarnation flesh and blood like us why because we who are from one man uh, are called to be part of the new man hmm. uh, who who is come to us right you know, the person of Christ and and Oh, man, I, I, that's the most beautiful and exciting <laughs> yeah. stuff for yeah. us to hear. Yeah. And and it, it applies, you know. It it opens our eyes. I, I just I just think the simple truth uh, of of Christian faith is is what we sometimes think we have to get all sophisticated about this stuff. And <laughs> sure. I yeah. don't think so. Well, give it give us the the third article then too while you're at it with the. Well, I, don't wanna, in... I don't want to quit the second article. Yet. Oh, well, keep going. <laughs> All right, let's I mean, keep we going. got the incarnation, of course, but then yep. you look at Christ's work. Mm -hmm. um, he comes, he comes to a suffering world. I mean, read the Gospels. And what do you see Jesus doing? Reaching out to all these poor, poor people who are just screwed up and messed up, <laughs> and, and and suffering and and in great need and. And it's not the world where everything's cool. The world we want to think uh, is is success. And, yeah. Uh, we all want to have things pleasant, understandable, but but they aren't. And it's the broken world that Christ came to heal, and not the <laughs> not the 
the healthy, but the sick. Not, right. not the righteous, but the sinners. And, right. and, uh, and all the way, he carries that all the way into suffering and death and atonement for the real issue, the, the, the rebellion that, that has separated us. Mm. And that's true for everybody. Right. We, again, the, the, the cities uh, and the places that kind of scare us off yeah, the in the LCMS. Yeah. You know? yeah. uh, we, we, you mentioned we have a desire Mm-hmm. But you know, I guess if if I had one one specific concrete hope, it would be um, for us to be able in our seminaries to to encourage more and more uh, um, seminarians. Oh, we're getting there to, and I, to see that yeah. there's this yeah. there's this high and holy and hard and yeah. and. Yeah. Uh, um, Often miserable um, mission field. Interesting. That lies yeah, ahead for and us. I have to tell you, I mean, our seminaries are doing a good job yeah, of picking yeah. up on that, and I'm really encouraged by how many people are have a great interest in that as well. So, yeah, I think I think we're going to see this start to blossom here here yeah. soon. Yeah, it's yeah, it is a big challenge. I, you know, the the congregation I I served most recently in New Jersey. Um, has really struggled. Uh, uh, it struggled for a long time to to find a pastor, um, and uh, uh, they have one now, thank God. <laughs> um, but I, I remember a conversation with the East Coast District President who mentioned that he contacted over forty individuals, seeing if they would be willing to have their names on a call list to come to the East Coast. Yeah, and only two said yes. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, five percent. If if and again if it's the least like us and we don't have people that yeah, are I mean, from and, there and, and that's coming what, out of your comfort zone and I yeah. get it I yeah. get it when yeah. you know when when I was uh, completing seminary and they talked to us about where we thought we would like to go we said somewhere in the Midwest please because that's where our fam- <laughs> that's where our families are sure yeah. sure the yeah. South for me kind of and they was sent us they sent us to New York yeah and it was like why'd you do this to us yeah I mean it is and, it is a culture and, you know, shock even in your own country yeah yeah, yeah. for, for us real. going to the for real. yeah the deep South was a, a different experience it was a wonderful experience exactly. it took us out of our comfort yeah. zone kind yeah. of a thing too but uh-huh. but man it was just a, a amazing experience yeah. so we are kind of getting uh, down to our last few minutes here so uh what about the the church so all right what does the risen lord do he sends uh he sends his disciples to make disciples and uh tells them but hang on till you get the holy spirit right? <laughs> uh, stay in the city and so they do and, and man think of pentecost yeah 16 different nations right there at pentecost you think the holy spirit's kind of sending some messages to us look at look at the book of acts you know he he he's he's got okay how about africa an ethiopian eunuch yeah. how about europe oh you don't want to go to europe no the man in the dream says go to macedonia uh what do you see happening you yeah know, going to all the nations going to all those people that aren't like you yeah you know for peter it takes a dream with the, with the picnic to, <laughs> right. to say yeah you can go to the gentiles yeah as a matter of fact i want you to go to the gentiles right on and and so that's the church it's the Catholic Church, you know, we, we have a custom of saying Christian. I, I confess I'm biased toward the word Catholic, <laughs> sure, because Catholic actually means for all. Right, right. It means for all the world. Yep. And we don't always catch that nuance when we say Christian. Um, again, of course, it's the Christian Church, so I'm not, not uh, condemning the term. 
Right. But we're missing something by never uh, by never spending much time talking about the church's Catholicity. Right. And of course, again, in the Nicene Creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And you mentioned the unity of the church. You know, yeah. This, this Catholic church is also the one church. Yeah. Why? Because there's all these sheep but one shepherd. Yeah. And it's one gospel that calls us, and it's one word, one right. Lord, one faith, one baptism, all of it. Uh, that's where our unity lies. It doesn't lie in in our our cultures, our skin color, our languages. Right. And I think kind of getting back to Mark's point, we, we all do have that vision of heaven. We all do yeah. recognize Revelation 7, where all the nations are gathered together around the throne in every language and every people and every every tribe. I think it... As we're saying, though, it's it's the challenge of that. And for me also, um, th- when you talk about unity, I, I kind of envision this this intersection, right? You've got, you've got the Great Commission, which which says make disciples of all nations, and then at the same time, like you said, you've got Christ's high priestly prayer, which is saying, and how will they know that the kingdom is here? What does the Prince of Peace do? He'll take people from all different. You know, people you never thought could sit. I mean, look at today. I mean, <laughs> you can imagine the groups. If you sat them in a room together and you said there's going to be peace with all these different people, you'd think that was crazy. But that's what happens when it's the Prince of Peace. That's how they will recognize, oh, this is not just your earthly Fox News versus CNN. This is what the priestly prayer was about, that the Prince of Peace can bring that kind of unity, yeah. right? And I think that's the intersection is that not only is it to make disciples of all nations, but it is that they will know us by our love. They will know us by this unity. They will know that there is something supernatural here in the church because this is what the Prince of Peace does. Mm. Amen. 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 <laughs> Well, guys, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, we've packed a, unpacked a lot of stuff uh, looking at the, the new America, looking at what our call is in terms of uh, us as a church body to see the, the glass half full and the opportunities that are before us, not you know, taking light of what the challenges and the complexities are that we face, but we do trust in the Lord of the harvest, and we do recognize, man, the harvest is ripe and it is it's time to get out the plows right brothers amen all right well thank you so much larry it's great to have you and mark great to have you with us again today my pleasure and uh thanks everybody for listening in and we'll catch you next time in mission field usa thanks for listening to the mission field usa podcast for church planting Visit lcms.org slash churchplanting for other resources and information to share your ideas and to contact us. The Mission Field USA podcast is a production of the Office of National Mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in partnership with KFUO Radio. The Lord be with you.